We have a special guest today on Go. We have Dr. Boyce Watkins. Let's go. The next election in 2020. You're independent, I assume. Yes, I am. I'm also an independent. How do black people get out the mess of... You have this one wolf, this Republican Party, uh, who a lot of them tend to be overtly racist, right? Uh, And you keep on having a bad choice between this beast, this monster Republican Party, MAGA, uh, and then you go over to the Democrat Party because they're so racist, right? But none of them, these two choices are not good choices for for, for black folks, right? Uh, And the black vote really decides who's going to be in power it will tip the scale of a divided white electorate, right? So what is the solution? How do we get out this mess where we don't love the Republican Party? We don't love the Democratic Party, a lot of us. We're not crip walking for the Democratic Party. We don't want to. We want something better. Um, I think that the way we get out of the mess is, uh, we could do one of two things, right? From a political standpoint, um, you know, there is that option of having that, that party that's just all black. Um, that doesn't mean that we can get a, a candidate in office per se, but it becomes a block where uh, Jay Morrison has proposed this, where we actually have our own internal process of deciding who we support, almost the way labor, the way the Teamsters might do. It. You know, uh, they, they get together, they talk about it, they all vote, or, you know, or they, you know, communicate which candidate they think represents their interests the best, and then they offer an endorsement to that particular party based on that, right? That's that's one option. Um, you know, what does that really do? Uh, I, I don't know how effective that is. I agree with you, uh, but first and foremost, we need a, I believe, we need a philosophical adjustment. We need to understand that the oppression, the racism, the white supremacy, the discrimination, it's not a Republican or a Democratic thing, right? Uh, that both parties are suboptimal for where the black community wants to go. Uh, and the greed, listen to me, the greed that controls a lot of these politicians on right and left in black America, we need to understand how the game works, that the, the Democrats are being funded by a lot of them are corporations, elites, and they are the uh, part of the power system behind the politicians and leader. So you have a greed that is embedded within the Democratic Party, the Republican Party and the entire system. The first stop on reimagining, I believe, the political landscape for black America is to understand that greed, corporate greed, including interests from foreign countries, is coming before the black vote. I believe, uh, you know, when you look at Cory Booker and Kamala Harris giggling with uh, Netanyahu uh, and they're being they're, they're going to do all these speeches, they may do more speeches with those aligned with the interests of Israel than they do with those aligned with the interests of the black community. Uh, uh, That that's where they draw a lot of their financial and political support. 
uh, and they will prioritize, I believe, the Jewish community over the black community. Uh, and so when you think about, hey, we vote, right? We have, we have a bigger population, but why do these black politicians, why do these politicians take care of these smaller groups? Why are they prioritizing this other stuff? And so what black America, I believe, needs to think about is you have to, you have to evaluate the entire system in terms of how corporations, other countries, how these people influence and control the politicians, that it's a game. Right. It's like a puppet show and who's pulling the strings. And so the consciousness, I believe, of the black voter uh, really needs to bang hard politically on removing the corporate and foreign interests out of politics. I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I don't think I wouldn't say that that's not a, a priority. I, I just, you know, I, I, I think that I think that when it comes to things like that, I. I, I tend to lean to other advisors because I, I've, I've become so cynical of the political system that, it, you know, I see it and I just see it. It's so fucked up that it's just something where I don't know how in my lifetime I could change this beast of a, you know. So I'm not, uh, it's kind of like, it, I'm it, not, I'm it, not, it, it doesn't matter who's in power and kind of I'm going to do my thing. It's not going to say it doesn't matter. It's more like in terms of what, what matters most in my life, uh, who's in power doesn't have. Uh, the dominant impact on what occurs, you know, in my existence as a black man or black, you know, if I, or if I were a black woman, I think that, um, you know, t to your point though, you know, this idea that you got these black politicians, Kamala and, and Cory Booker that, you know, are kissing up to the Jewish community more than they kiss up to the black community. Um, it does make you say, okay, well, why is that? And obviously it's money, right? They, the Jews are able to make financial contributions that are disproportionate to their percentage in the population, and black people, we feel that we're going to have an influence because we all voted. And so at the end of the day, black people lose because we don't have the massive numbers to really, really swing a vote. We, we can influence a vote to a point, but we don't have like Hispanic level numbers. Right. Uh, you know, so so we can only influence that so much. Um, and then financially, we can only do so much. So I think that when you talk about where you're putting your energy, I do agree with you that if it were possible to find some way to support a candidate that wants to get the money out of politics, fine, do it. I don't think it's going to be doable. I just don't. I just think that sometimes you get to a point where the beast has become so bad, so deadly, so infected that you can't pull the virus out of the beast. But maybe but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe somebody could prove me wrong. Why do you think the, the black Democrat establishment, the Congressional Black Caucus, why haven't black Democrats required the Democratic Party in their platform, they have like paragraphs written on Israel, for example. Why do you think black Democrats have never pushed for prioritizing our brothers and sisters in Africa in terms of trade, in terms of cultural exchange, in terms of support? Why haven't the black Democrats demanded that the Democratic Party has to prioritize the entire continent of Africa over Israel? That Israel has a, uh, a big bullet point of priority in the Democratic Party platform. Africa does not have that priority. They start talking about wildlife. Uh, but why wouldn't the black Democrat require the Democratic Party to say, in terms of foreign aid, uh, economic development, military support, that the country of Israel, 
cannot get more support than the entire continent of Africa where we are descendants of. Because they're not, you know, the members of the Congressional Black Caucus aren't really there to represent the interests of even the black people who voted for them. They, they just, they, I think they see their base as being relatively unsophisticated, incapable of seeing the big picture, you know? So if I'm, if I'm a congressman or a senator and, I, re- and I've, I was elected by black people, you know, I can go back and I can make them happy by just, you know, putting a statue up in the park or opening up a, a little league football team. You know, they're not gonna really necessarily be concerned about, you know, the weight of global politics. You know, like why, why, why are you doing more things for Israel than you are for Africa? Um, you're gonna have some of those black people who will say, yeah, who, who are smart like you, who are gonna see that whole big picture. But what happens is in our community, ignorance is winning. So people like that get marginalized. You know, there, there, there will always be fewer people, black people listening to me than there are who will listen to Cardi B, right? And uh, and you know, so uh, and you think, I mean, let's just think about that, right? Cardi B is this influential person who uh, is very talented, but she became famous by, you know, going on Instagram and talking about how well she can suck a penis. Right. And so that just kind of speaks to, you know, just sort of where we are as voters. We're not a, at this point, a very sophisticated voting base. Now, maybe in 50 years, we can be more sophisticated. That's why I think the educators have to fight the good fight and elevate the community's consciousness level. But, uh, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. Well, the Democratic Party, the corporate Democrats, there's different, of course, segments in the Democratic Party, but the corporate elites who love a Bill Clinton, uh, they love a Barack Obama, they love Hillary Clinton, they don't love kind of Bernie Sanders, they don't love kind of some of the, the more progressive candidates, uh, right? Um, the more socialist uh, candidates, the more populist candidates. So the corporate elites have made up their mind, at least uh, in, in, in my view, is that we want to run either as vice president, as president, Cory Booker or Kamala Harris. Uh, and here's my theory on this. If I run a black, clean black politician, you know, Ivy League, great credentials, super clean. If I run a Barack Obama, if I run a Kamala Harris, if I run a Cory Booker, right? Uh, these are people white folks are comfortable with. And I, I don't need to negotiate much with that black voter because so many black voters are going to go on the optics of, we got a black person on the team. We got a black president. We got a black vice president that in, in the value exchange, if I put a black person out front, you know, in terms of how a democratic strategist, I think that they're thinking these, these elites is I can offer the black community less. If I have a white candidate, I may have to offer them more. I may have to do more. So in the perverse two party system, that's really centralized on greed and different sides of that greed landscape, corporate landscape that the cheapest way to get a black voter in terms of what type, what type of policies do I have to offer them is to run a clean black candidate because I don't have to offer that much. You guys are happy with the black face. That's true. You know, um, 
it's very easy to get over on a person or group of people when they value flash over substance. Very easy. Um, you know, the Obama campaign mastered that. They, they knew that if they just had pictures of the family on the cover of Ebony magazine, um, you know, that that would go a long way. Or if he sang the Al Green, Al Green song when he's giving a speech, um, you know, little things like that. They had Michelle Obama rapping. Remember, like she was Beyonce or something like th- these are the things that they give to black people because black people don't really um, they we're not necessarily ready to uh, play hardball politics, you know, um, and. It, you know, I, whether that changes or how fast it changes, I don't know. But you do agree with that kind of disconnect in the political marketplace where when you play out the scenario of the Democratic Party and how things work, that when you run your scenarios, the cheapest way to get that black voter to turn out is to run a black one. And so actually, when you play this stuff out, a white Democratic candidate, you're probably going to get more criminal justice reform, more stuff, if they run a white people. They got to do more. You do believe that. Inter- Generally, obviously, there's exceptions. Right. I, I do think there's a trade-off. There is a, a trade-off in the sense that if you look at the Obama presidency, for example, I use that as a good example because it illustrates the point you're making it right there. Um, we gave up something for the fact that we got the chance to look at somebody in office who looks like us because what that does, because everything you do, everything the politician does is he, you know, he's trying to send a message to you that I'm on your side and I deserve your vote. So if it's a white guy, he's actually got to deliver something, a policy, some money or whatever. If he's black, he all he's got to do is say, well, look, I'm black. After Trayvon Martin, after that happens and some of these other police shootings, is there a less push towards the federal government in terms of calling for justice for the kids that are being killed by the police? Is the, the black men and women here in America, they hold back some because it's Barack Obama. If it's a white man, you guys are in the streets. You guys are in the streets banging against the president and you're banging against America hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that, you know, I, I think that what's interesting is that the Obama presidency set the tone for Donald Trump to feel comfortable ignoring black people because a lot of what Trump has said is actually what, um, you know, uh, Yvette Carnell actually said, and she was very right. Um, Trump basically came back and said, you know, look, I, you know, you're, what, what did Obama do for you? Why, why are you getting mad? You know, like that I did this. He didn't do this, Right. And and I remember I remember Yvette saying this. This is back you know when we used to work together more. But she said, if you don't ask this black president to help you uh, or to do things for you, then the next white president's gonna say, well, why are you asking me to do stuff? The black guy was in office and he didn't have to do half of this, you know. So I think that we have to be very cautious about getting in heavily heavily involved in identity politics because it makes us look real stupid. If you're interested in advertising on the Go podcast, uh, you can go to moguldom.com forward slash G-H-O-G-H. Once you're there, click on the advertising link. Let's get back to the podcast. So last month, the Israeli government killed, murdered 20 20 Palestinians. Just murdered them. 20 Palestinians, and they murdered them. You did not hear Kamala Harris 
who's been to Israel. Uh, you do not hear Cory Booker, who's been to Israel. Why won't these Negroes say something? Because now they're at the national level, right? Kamala Harris is in the Senate. Corey, they're, they're speaking from a national foreign policy perspective now. They're at the, the heights of the political system. This is the, these are the Democratic Party stars, right? But why won't they, if they're really committed to justice and they talk about international issues, why do you think we haven't heard them condemn the Israeli government for killing 20 Palestinians? I think that you asked that question because you know the answer, right? Um, we know that they're owned. They're bought and paid for. Um, you know, the uh, Anti-Defamation League and th these Jewish organizations pretty much run and control a lot of politics. I think black people can learn a lot from the Jewish community in terms of how to have a lot of power that's disproportionate to your representation in the population. Someone on the global stage, in terms of, you know, when I look at some of the messaging uh, that comes out from these, uh, these, these corporate Democrats, you know, they'll say little things to get black people kind of, yay, 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 yay. So, you know, the, the, they have, they're, they're very strategic in the messages they put out to the community to make the community think they're really for them, that they come first. So can you trust your politicians, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, these type of politicians uh, who white folks just love, uh, corporate Democrats, they just love. Those are those candidates and they're positioning them for 2020. Can you trust a politician on justice for our people here in the United States where are they going to do the right thing in terms of, you know, our kids and black men and black women being shot down the police and there's no justice. Uh, can we trust them to do the right thing by the community and prioritize us if they're on the international stage and they won't even say anything about 20 innocent people being killed by Israel? Meaning that they, they may speak a few things here because they're gonna get your vote, but you wanna judge people in terms of their consistency, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that they're, I think that what they're going to probably do from a foreign policy perspective is they're going to represent um, the best interests of that segment of the United States that um, controls their actions and writes their checks, right? So um, I would say the best interests of the United States, but I don't think it's in the best interests of the United States. I think a lot of our foreign policy is built on, uh, it's connected to corporate greed, it's connected to uh, a, a type of arrogance, you know, where we've done a lot of bad things all throughout the world in, you know, in the name of the United States. And, uh, and it, it makes, it, it's given us a lot of enemies, right? So, so I would say that um, in that situation, I think that what a Kamala Harris might be thinking or a Cory Booker is thinking is, well, yeah, it is sad that they killed these Palestinians, but there's nobody in the United States that is paying me to represent the interests of the Palestinians, almost like a lawyer saying, well, I'd like to represent you, but you're not paying my fee. But I represent him because he's paying my fee. So the Jews are paying their fee. The Jews are the ones who are controlling damn near everything. And, 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 and they're, they got the game on lot because they got it to the point where they, are, they have the ability to label you as anti-Semitic just because you point out the fact that they're running the whole game. You know, and um, and so I think, you know, overall, at the end of the day, it tells you a little bit about how politics works. It, it ain't about these people. To me, it's not about these people trying to do the right things. It's not about it's not even about these people really having any real control or any real 
say in, in what happens out of their office. If they don't do what the machine behind them is telling them to do, then the machine will replace them. It's like a, a CEO. If I'm the CEO of a corporation and, and my job, I've agreed, I've signed on to this job to maximize the wealth of the shareholders by engaging in a specific strategy, I have only so much space to deviate from that strategy. If I deviate too much, then what's going to happen? The board of directors is going to vote. You know, the, the shareholders and the board of directors are going to get rid of me. They're going to replace me with somebody who plays ball the way they want you to play ball. Did you vote for Barack Obama? Yes. Yeah. I uh, saw, both times? Yeah. 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 I, I don't, I don't have any issue with Barack. I, but I, I, I had, but, you know, go ahead. I had people that got upset with me because I told black people they don't have to vote for him. I told, yeah. I told black people they should vote for whoever the hell they want to, you know? And I think, and, and then I told them they don't even have to vote that your ancestors didn't die for you, die for you to vote for a Democrat. They died for you to have the right to choose. Uh, what would you say to the black Democrat who would say, look, we get what you're saying, but if you do not vote, more, more of our people are going to be locked up, right? There's going to be more privatization of the prisons, that there's real consequences of you telling black people don't come out and stop Donald Trump, stop MAGA, that if you do not vote black man and woman, don't be crying when Donald Trump stops all the positive stuff Obama was doing as it relates to criminal justice reform in the prison system. I say, you know what? Anytime you take a stand on anything, there's always a consequence. You know, and so my I, I flip that on the Democratic Party. I say, well, if you're upset that black people because uh, Cory Booker, do you remember Cory Booker blamed black people for Trump? Yeah, elected. yeah. And very, said we brought very, it on ourselves. Okay. Yeah, that's well, just pure sickness. Right. And my thought is, no, I put that on the Democrats. If maybe if you had done more, black people would have felt incentivized. We're voting 90% you. Democrat. Who's right. more loyal than, a Democrat, than the black Democrat? Right. You guys should be voting at 95. Well, you go <laughs> tell white folks that. Right, right. Or, or, or I think what they're saying is, even though we support the Democrats, that you know more of us should have just came to the polls, right? It's one thing for me. It's to like say, it's like that sense of entitlement. It sounds like what you're what you're saying is like they're just in, Democrats are just entitled to the black vote. Yeah, well, you know, it, it. I mean, they there is an entitlement, and I think ultimately, you know, you're right. The Trump presidency has you know Trump has stunk up the place. It's it's not a fun thing to watch. Um, it's it's a tough consequence for us to pay as a country for making a bad decision, you know, whatever happened, right? But I will say this: if you notice, there's actually talk right now for the first time ever that the Democratic Party might include reparations as part of their platform. And why do you think that happened? That happened because the Democrats have said we need black people to show up to this election. What do we need to do to be more sensitive to their needs so they're going to show up? A, a small group of Democrats a small who are pushing group. that. Right, yeah. Th those who wanted to do what was necessary yeah. to get black people yeah. out there, right? So, you know, my position on it is you can't... The reason people are so focused on the consequences of abstaining or the consequences of us taking a stand against democratic tyranny is because they're short-sighted. All they see is, oh my God, if we don't vote, then Trump will get elected. It'll be all your fault. And I had black people that got mad at me and said, no, 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 you should have told black people to vote Democrat because it's your fault that had Trump's a, in office. I got to be honest, brother. I had a thought. I saw one of your messages and, you know, I was really thinking about uh, specifically certain policies that as soon as Trump got in the office, he was going to uh, pull back a lot of the, the positive stuff uh, Obama was doing 
in uh, that there would be consequences of a low black turnout. Right. There are always consequences when you, you know, if you want a long-term gain, there will always be short-term consequences. You know, and, and the problem, the reason black people can't move forward is because everybody want to go to heaven, but don't nobody want to die. Everybody wants to lose weight, but don't nobody want to go through the pain of being in the gym. You're saying that Trump, in terms of you were thinking this then, that maybe if Trump gets in the office, the system is so bad, it's so messed up that this would actually turn out to be a positive long term. My belief was that if we let the Democrats know that we know we got a choice, we always have a choice, we don't have to show up and vote for you. I don't care if you tell me that, oh, I'm going to die and the they Republicans are going to make Give the Democrats Trump. Right, right. Fuck it. Just, you, yeah, you, you don't give it. a fuck Shit's about. So- right. You, you, you said fuck me. Well, fuck you, too. <laughs> That's my whole position, yeah. right? You, you, you know, seriously, think about this. It's, I mean, it, it, it's easy to understand. Like, I mean, it, assuming that there's no nuclear war uh, or, you know, nothing really pops off. Right. All honesty, it could be a net net for the black men and women specifically in America because Obama put a lot of you guys to sleep. Obama put a lot of you guys to sleep. You saw a black president. You saw Michelle. You started thinking MAGA. You started thinking America was great. We're, we're beyond race. Uh, man, America, these people have woke up. They're treating black people differently. America is different. Obama and Michelle, they pretty much said the same thing in terms of some of their speeches about America so fair. I can't believe the, you know, the, four, the descendants of slaves are in the White House. America so gracious. America is MAGA. You know, America is great. And I believe that Obama and Michelle, not intentionally, not intentionally, but they put a lot of black people to sleep in terms of this beast here in America. Oh, let me tell you a story. I gave a speech um, right when Obama got inaugurated at a church in Long Island. And the choir director was leading um, black people to sing the song, We Shall Overcome. It was a Martin Luther King Day speech. And instead of singing, We Shall Overcome, they changed the words to, We Have Overcome. That's what they had people. And then when I was in the lobby, a lady came out with this beautiful portrait of Barack Obama, and it was an old lady, and I said, that's a beautiful picture. Where'd you get that? She said, I just bought it in the lobby, and I'm going to take it home, and I'm going to put it right next to my pictures of Martin Luther King and Jesus. That was the mindset of black people. It's, it's, it's some coonish, backward, slave thinking, and you're right. We, we put ourselves to sleep, and Trump woke you up, and now you, 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 you're better off woke. You better you you are better off woke. Absolutely. You know, yeah, we we, yeah, we, we yeah. gotta, you know, it's it's like, I mean, think about this. I asked black people, I said, so tell me, since oh Trump got elected, I know this upsets you, but I need you to tell me exactly what has changed in your life on a day-to-day basis as a result of Trump being in the White House or the results of Obama getting elected. What has changed in your life? Did your your kids suddenly go to a better school? Um, did you get a better job? Were you making more money? Were you happier? you know, with your life, uh, you know, and, and the answer is no, there, there's nothing that they can point to tangibly that shows that Obama being in office or Trump being in office affects their life. The only way it affects your life is it affects your life almost like you're watching a movie. You know, it's like if you have a favorite character. Well, I can say it has impacted their life in a positive way because a lot of you are more woke. Uh, a lot of you have all of a sudden developed a consciousness. A lot of you guys were getting money and you started thinking America was this and that, and America was never this and that when Obama and Michelle were in office. So when you really analyze it, if 
Hillary Clinton went into office, a lot of you guys, particularly the Negroes getting money, a Negroes who believe we're beyond race, you guys would still be asleep. Trump came, I believe, and he woke you up. You should have been woke before when Obama was in office. But you started thinking America was a lot better, a, a lot fairer, a lot less racist because Obama and Michelle were president. And that was a lie. That's true. I mean, I think that complacency sets in when you're comfortable. You know, anytime any group of people has achieved progress, it's because the pressure of their situation, the pressure of their persecution led them to say, we can't live like this anymore. Black people... Meaning, meaning more revolutionary. Like, we can't keep on doing this little Democrat incremental Hillary Clinton. We, we need a revolution. There needs to be something big to shake this shit up. Yeah, well, the thing about black people is that we become we 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 can we are very good at fi finding a way to be um, comfortable in oppression. Like we can survive, and we're a little bit like those. You know, they have those different creatures that can survive in extreme temperatures, <laughs> in extreme heat or extreme cold. You know, we're kind of like that. Like we're we're it it takes a while to put so much pressure on black people as a community that we decide to activate and actually do something. You know, uh, whereas there's some people. Where they're, you know, because they're used to living at a certain level, uh, if you take one little thing away, like a billionaire, if you increase his tax rate by half a percent, he's he's outraged. He's trying to sue you. He's trying to go and fight you. He's he's mad as hell because he he's a, he's accustomed to a certain level of, of treatment and reward. Black people are accustomed to almost nothing. We're accustomed to zero. So anything you give us, we compare it to zero, which means that. You know, it takes a while for us to get so rock bottom that we say, okay, I'm not living like this no more. And the reason that that's important, the reason that you have to have that pressure that leads to progress is that, you know, it makes you think about when I became an entrepreneur. I was a comfortable Negro. I had, I was making six figures. I was highly educated. There was a space for me in the system. But the racism on the job had to become so unbearable that I said, you know, I don't even care if I'm, if I'm homeless and broke. I'm quitting this job. I'm getting the fuck up out of here. And then that led me to develop the skill to build a business, you know, that I wouldn't have developed if they had treated me better. You see, if they had been nice to me, gave me the raises and the promotions I wanted, I wouldn't have left. Like, like in a relationship, you know, how often are you madly in love with somebody and they're not treating you right and you're putting up with this and putting up with that and you're tolerating a whole bunch of shit and then you hit that point where you hit rock bottom and you're like, I got to go, either that or maybe they even put you out against your will. They dump you and you're begging this shitty person to let you back in because you don't have anywhere else to go. But then what happens, right? You're forced to adjust. Now they're not an option for you anymore. Now you have to look and see what else the world has for you. And then next thing you know, six months later, you meet somebody, you fall in love, and you look back and you say, oh, my God, if I had never been forced out of that other situation, I wouldn't be in the situation I'm in now. Hallelujah. So you realize that you have to go through the discomfort of change to extreme experience a better reality. Black folks don't like that. They don't want to hear that. So that's why when I speak about half of the black people in the room get offended because people don't want to go through the pain that leads to the game. You teach uh, a lot of uh, financial literacy uh, and you're taking it to the masses. Do you touch on, you know, one thing that I, I feel like culturally our community needs a lot of education on, you know, there's, there, there, there's room to optimize the culture in terms of how we think about 
something as simple as autos, uh, particularly, you know, a lot of folks uh, thinking, you know, they need a quality of car that they probably don't need. Hey, you know, it just in, in terms of growing up, uh, that black consumer, I want a BMW, I want a Mercedes, I want an Audi. Uh, and in contrast to, for example, one of my friends, he used to say, I want to own my car. I'm going to get a Honda Accord or a Toyota, uh, something that has a, uh, a low repair and maintenance cost in the United States, and I'm going to own it. I'm not going to have a car payment, right? And so that's like one side. Like I'm going to get a used car, it doesn't cost a lot of money. Either I'm going to buy it or I'm going to finance a small amount to pay off this $3,000 Honda Accord, at least at the time. This is my friend. And so it's very different from like, let's say nine other guys, right? Nine other guys, they want the Audi, they want the BMW, they want the nice car, right? That's at like a, a, a five or six X multiple of what my friend would buy his car for. So... You know, with the black consumer, as it relates to autos, how much do you talk about eliminating the whole idea that you need a car payment in your monthly budget? You know, um, <clears throat> in the black business school, one of the things that I think that we do very, very well is um, we, we, we talk about life more than we talk about just, you know, straight money management. Right. Um, because we believe money is life and that your whole life is an investment, you know, it's or an investment opportunity anyway. Right. So we talk about investments that you make in terms of time, investments you make in terms of love. Anything that relate that happens in a love relationship can actually be analogized to an investment transaction. All the concepts, diversification, risk return, all that stuff can be actually linked to the things that we experience on a daily basis. And it's easy to convert that over into money because money is one of the things that people think about the most in their lives. So with that said, to your point, um, you know, when we get into a conversation about whether or not you feel like you need a car note or what kind of car you choose to buy, um, that's that's really done kind of within the broader conversation of saying, you know, what are your goals? Like, wh what are you trying to do? Where are you trying to get to? How are you trying to find freedom in your life? The goal is not money. The goal is freedom. Right. And, and to get freedom, you don't always need a lot of money. Right. There are poor people who are freer than some rich people. Right. And, but money is, can be a tool for freedom if you apply it in the right way. So I might say to somebody, I don't I don't I'm not big on condemning a choice. I can't not really condemning a, a, a choice, but. If Negroes are going to say our community doesn't have any money, you know, we don't have this, we don't have that, white man's doing this, white man's doing that, and that person is driving around in a BMW uh, paying a high finance charge uh, and to the point that I get what the white man's doing, I get what America's doing, I get what elite's doing, I'm going to bang against them, right, when justified. But what can we be doing in terms of being smarter, being disciplined in terms of our own behavior? Meaning how many people do you know uh, for the odd? How many people do you know black who had the ability to pay for a low cost car, but chose to pay for a high price car so you could feel good? You want to floss, you want to look good. Uh, and essentially we start sending the money to communities who are going to invest and most likely who are going to oppress. Uh, and so whether it's the finance company 
that will take advantage of your lack of discipline in terms of, you know, they probably love to see a lot of black consumers who stretch themselves maybe more than other consumers. Uh, but I, I feel like on a consumer level, there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of how we think about just something as basic as kind of car and transportation in our budget. For, uh, just to clarify, I'm not against having a nice car, but I do know that uh, a lot of uh, smart and wealthy people, they're going to buy a used car, right? Ain't going to use that money. Uh, they're going to own a car. And uh, even if they have to finance initially, uh, and they're going to use the, the excess money to invest. Yeah, well, you know, my position on the car is that it's harder for me to just tell you that that's a bad decision because I don't know what your taste is. I don't know what trade-offs you're willing to make. You can't say that, I, hey, if you're making, you know, a certain amount or you don't own a home, you, you're, you, don't, you don't have a brokerage account, you don't own a home, you don't own a piece of a business. Uh, you can't say that, hey, it's probably unwise for you to be driving around in a 70,000 bins. Yeah, I, I don't I don't particularly use that particular approach, yeah. right? It doesn't mean that I don't agree. It just means that I want you to at least understand the trade-offs. It's like when Kanye West was talking about uh, having a choice, right? And people got mad because it was slavery. And I said, well, actually, technically, anything that happens in your life, you have a choice, right? So what I mean by that is you have a lot of people who might be driving you know, the expensive car, living life on the edge financially, not making good financial decisions. And you say, well, um, you know, you're... You're you're on uh, five medications now because your stress level's so high, uh, and they say, well, they say, well, why are you going through that? They say, well, because of my, it's my job. It's the racism on my job, man. White man got me down. He's doing this and doing that to me. And you say, well, why don't you quit your job? He'll say, I don't have a choice. And you say, well, why don't you have a choice? Well, because I gotta make I gotta make the car note payment. I gotta pay for this and pay for that. I gotta pay for the the beach house. I gotta pay for this and you know all these other things, right? I gotta pay four babies, mamas, all that. And so what you're really saying is you're not really telling me you don't have a choice. You're telling me that you locked yourself into a situation where you don't have a choice. You chose to constrain your life by deciding that you wanted to drive that Mercedes for $600 a month when you could have got you a car for $150 a month, right? You chose to uh, sleep with those women and create those babies, mamas, and all those child support payments, you know, when you could have chose to put a condom on your ass, right? So, you know, my point at the end of the day is that um, I think that that conversation can be had where I can say to their brother, I can say, look, I'm not going to tell you what to choose. I just need you to know where you're pulling all the levers so you don't go through life thinking that you're in this box and it's a box that, you know, somebody else created. You know, because some people do that. People will ruin their own life and then act like somebody else did it. You know, because why? Well, because that victimhood, that victimology is taught at an early age, you know. And so, you know, the, the, the hardest thing to explain to black people in general, I think, for a lot of people, not even just black people, it's true for a lot of people, is that, you know, your life is something that you made. It's something you chose. It's something you created. You have a lot of say in this. And, and people don't really want to hear that. You know, they want to kind of hear you tell them, no, it, it, all of these bad decisions you're making, all these bad moves you're making, it ain't your fault because you're oppressed. It's the white man's fault. That's, that's, why I don't think, that's why I don't think liberals are helping black people when they do that, right? Yeah. You know, so, so I think that, that so that's the conversation I would have. But, but I agree with you, though. Do, do you believe uh, the masses of our people um, here in the United States, they believe millionaires drive fancy cars? Do you believe that, that, that the masses believe that, net-net? I do believe Most that. of the masses. I, I believe the masses believe that, yes. Do you believe that that's true? 
Um, I don't. I haven't seen studies on it. Okay. Um, I do know that there are millionaires who drive fancy cars, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do know a lot of millionaires who don't drive, right? Because of what you were saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. One study uh, that was conducted and it was highlighted in a book called The Millionaire Mind, I believe. Uh, and my friend uh, brought this to my attention several years ago. Uh, they did a study of millionaires and the study came out and said that most millionaires drive used cars and the what's going on there is that they wanted to wait for the depreciation of the car uh to not go down as uh fast right so after two years that's the that's the period that at least the people in the study they were going to go in and buy the car they're going to let the person kind of hey drive off in your fancy car look all great have your emotions kind of really, you know, going on emotional high. But after two years, when that car is used, then I will go in and buy. And at least according to this study, he said that most millionaires um, have used cars and buy used cars. But in, in terms of growing up in the black community, being around black people, I think and kind of, you know, when you look at the media, it looks like... Uh, Hey, you know, if if you got a little mo- extra money, you know, you got to have a nice car. Our millionaires, they're buying luxury cars. That's something wealthy people do, and I want to look wealthy. That goes back to an idea that that we talk about sometimes called what I, I would call financial efficiency, right? That study doesn't say millionaires don't drive luxury cars. It says millionaires don't buy new luxury cars, right? Right, right. So, so efficiency says if you spend 30k on a car, you're going to get a car that's brand new and spend 30k I'm going to get a nicer car and spend the same 30K, but it's going to be two years old, so I'm not paying for bullshit, right? I'm not paying, for, you know, that, that, that money you lose just by driving it off the lot, all that depreciation that occurs in the first year or two. I'm going to take all of that out, and I might still spend the same as you, but I'm going to be driving a much but nicer But they're millionaires, car. though. So, so, so I guess the, 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 the big picture, as I see it, is that that millionaire is probably spending the same amount on cars as you making, you know, maybe 40 or 50 uh, in their approach in terms of targeting used cars, at least two years old, uh, that like the ratios are out of whack in terms of ratio to income, ratio to wealth, meaning that when you run those numbers, a lot of the, the auto related consumer behavior is, is, is out of whack, meaning that a lot of us, are getting into consumer financing, consumer leasing, getting into cars uh, that we probably shouldn't be in. Uh, and, and, and so the, why, why does this matter? Is because when you think about the financial stress that our people are, are, are in, in terms of how do we get out of this mess, and you break down that, that that individual's budget, that auto budget is consuming a lot in the black wallet, the black budget's, uh, and so that's something that you don't need another man to change. You don't need America to change. You don't need Donald Trump to do anything. You don't need the Democrats to do anything. But when you look at that budget, that auto expense, that's something that I feel like we can uh, we can optimize within our culture. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't think we want to get to a point where we want everyone to believe that, you know, the reason that we have some of these issues is because we want nice cars 
or even because like, I used to be, I used to have a different opinion, for example, on the purchase of Air Jordan. In terms of how do we get out the mess? Uh, how do we get out of our mess? I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do, how do we get out the mess? I'm just saying like, hey, what can we, what can we optimize that's in front of us? You know, that's, that, that's financial, that's involved with the budget. And what can we attack ourselves? And when you're looking for excess, right? So if you're, as a business, hey, you know, the revenue's not coming in as I had forecasted it. What are we doing that is like we have a surplus? Well, let me tell you a secret. Um, I spend like a fucking fool when I want to. I don't give a fuck. When I want something, I go buy it. And so I'm not going to have anybody tell me I can't have, if I want to get a 200, I wouldn't buy $200 Jordans, but if I wanted to buy $200 Jordans, I would do it. Why? Because I don't think that you have to think about wealth building all the time, simply, uh, or just from a scarcity, you know, sort of standpoint where, 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 you know, it's like, okay, we got to cut this and cut that. And this is where we're wasting money. What I think people want to know is it goes back to choice, right? So when I was looking at my budget, back when I was working on the plantation and I was making a certain amount of money and I said, my budget is stretched. I don't have any money to save. I said, okay, I can cut this. And I was like, but I don't want to cut this. I can cut that. Well, I don't, I don't really want to cut that. And then I went, I said, wait a minute, I don't have to just cut what I spend. I can increase what I make. Right. So that means that I had, I chose to, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to make an investment. I'm going to make an investment to go read books on how to make extra money, how to be an entrepreneur, how to get a side hustle. So that now Remember, spending, say, $7,000 a month is a lot of money if you're making $7,000 a month. But spending $7,000 a month is not a big deal if you're making $12,000 a month, right? And so what I think that we can do, and I agree with you, though, I think that in terms of spending, if you hold everything constant, right, if the income stays flat and you're, you're on the plantation and you're getting whatever the plantation gives you, then yes, you have, you're stuck in a scarcity mindset. Like you're in a jail cell and it's, it's, you have to make space. So you got to put, take something out to, in order to have more room, but why not get you a bigger space to operate in? So you have a little more leeway. And I think that's where we lose when we're not taught, we're not teaching our kids to be business owners. We're not teaching them how to be investors. We're not teaching people how to get side streams of income. We're not really, really pushing education at the highest level. So you can get, at least if you're going to get a job, you can get the highest paying job. Right? So I, I think overall, um, you know, your point is right, right? Like everything else held equal, you know, it doesn't make sense to buy a new car. Let me clarify. It could make sense to buy a new car if you're into new cars and, hey, you have other priorities taken care of first, meaning that, hey, I have life insurance, right? I'm paying uh, whatever I have to pay to have life insurance or I'm going in the direction of owning home ownership or, you know, I'm investing in stocks. Like you have these other things ahead of, hey, I want to floss in a Lexus. You have these other priorities in front of, I need that BMW so I can floss. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the thing about money that leads to so much waste is that many of us are trained to look at money in the wrong way in the first place. You know, at an early age, you're taught that money is something you use to, to give, you give it away so you can get stuff. You know, you, you know, so your relationship with the world is already fucked up from the beginning because you're thinking that whenever I get any money in my hand, I'm supposed to trade and the world gives me stuff. 
and I have no more money. And, and let me just say, I'm not going all Bill Cosby in terms of talking about the community. I know about this because when I had a great job in college. You know, I was promoted to a housing director uh, for hundreds of students, and I have thousands of dollars rolling in. Uh, I lived in the projects up until I was 12. I'm very close to like, the streets, black culture. The first thing I want to do is what? I start making good money in college. What do I want to do? I want to go get a nice car. I want to floss in a car, right? And, and so I believe if we had the, the, the financial education culturally in terms of this is passed down in terms of this is how you do things. You need to methodically think about these decisions that go on in life in terms of when you get a car, do you lease or finance a car? What kind of, you know, how much car can you afford? What are the, the kind of pros and cons uh, that I see that if I had more financial education, I would think about things very different. Uh, going into my adult life after college even. Uh, and I'm just saying that, you know, nothing to do with America, nothing to do with corporations. The finance companies and the auto companies, they have millions of dollars thinking about how to exploit consumers, not just black consumers, but consumers. But specifically, they do optimize their marketing to hook you, the subprime auto lenders, the auto manufacturers, that they have specific uh, optimization strategies to hook you into getting you into something you don't need, to hook you into a 20% interest rate a 30 percent interest rate to hook you into a car that you you don't need yeah well you know i i think you're right i think that we um we get fooled you know i mean black people and poor people are the biggest targets of all the most abusive marketing practices that there are right um you know predatory whether it's predatory lending unhealthy food um you know silly consumer items they advertise to us the most. Now, wh why would they do that? Well, uh, you know, they tend to choose their victims based on vulnerability. The same, right, yeah. the same way. The same way. You, you guys don't have a lot of educated fathers and mothers teaching you guys about financial literacy. Right, right. We don't want it in the schools either. Like Bill Cosby. You know, Bill Cosby, when he, when he picked his victims, you know, he, he didn't pick, you know, every woman. He picked certain, <laughs> he picked certain women that fit specific criteria. Yeah. Right? So for us, we got to say, why do we keep fitting the description of the group of people that everybody wants to victimize uh, and who's going to change that right yeah, and now, now when, we, when do we come off the crack right so we could say you know okay well let's wait we need we need white people to change that they need to do to do a better job of monitoring themselves and and stop doing what white people have done for 500 years which is pretty much raping and pillaging the entire world um i'm not waiting for that um yeah. i i think that as black people um you know there are there, there are people that get it and I, and and my goal is to talk to those people and to say okay let's figure out some defensive strategies so that we can make sure that this doesn't happen to our kids at least this won't happen to your children it's going to happen to somebody's black child somewhere for the rest of your life most likely but it won't be happening to your kids and and that's the most that we can aim for i think i want to thank uh dr uh boyce watkins for coming on go uh, Dr. Boyce, uh, can you point the audience to the Black Business School and where they can check you out online? Yeah, yeah. People can actually check out the Black Business School and actually get started for free at theblackbusinessschool.com. That's theblackbusinessschool.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamarla Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. 
You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.